Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, and we're co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew. And by the way, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments on the apps, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We have lots of great guests like we have today. Well, uh, no one is quite like the guest that we have today, but there are many interesting, smart, good people we have coming up that'll be informative and fun to talk to. And without further ado, allow me to welcome Anna Palmer. Anna is the founder and CEO of Punchbowl News, and they just started the Daily Punch, great podcast, uh, which we'll talk a great deal about today. Prior to starting Punchbowl, Anna was senior Washington correspondent at Politico and co-author of Politico's playbook, which became an absolute must-read for DC's most influential people. She also co-authored The Hill to Die On, which I am absolutely loving. Uh, she wrote it with Jake Sherman, her partner at, at Punchbowl, uh, an amazing behind-the-scenes account of the people at the highest levels of politics during the age of Trump. It's a really fascinating read. So if you're fascinated like me by what really happens in Congress, how decisions are made, how legislation is moved or killed, <laughs> and the real human beings underneath these epic characters, Anna Palmer is arguably one of, if not the nation's leading authority, and her work is indispensable. Anna what a treat. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Good. It's a whirlwind. You know, we uh, we launched a business in the middle of a pandemic. So, uh, and and there was a siege on the Capitol, a place where we all work. So it's been a total whirlwind, but things are, things are looking up. Yeah, it was. So entrepreneur is another arrow in your quiver of amazing experiences, but you decided that January, was it January 1st officially? It was. Yeah, we ended. I had been at Politico a very long time. We, we stopped January 31st. And I think we surprised a lot of people. January 1st, we sent our first uh, email send for our new company, Punchbowl News. Yeah, Punchbowl News. And while we're talking about it, is it uh, what's the URL? Uh, you can subscribe at punchbowl.news. Uh, for those who might be wondering why we would ever name a company that's news in Washington that should be pretty, you know, serious stuff, Punchbowl is the Secret Service nickname for the Capitol. So it's oh. kind of meant to be evocative in the sense of we're insiders, and we're going to bring you inside the Capitol and tell you what's happening, but also that we don't take ourselves too seriously and we should all kind of get in the mix and have a little fun. That's great. Yeah. I, I just learned something. I didn't know that. Um, I was thinking more in terms of so, some of my favorite conversations are like Julie Mason, when she had her afternoon show, she'd have those five o'clock hour reporters roundtable. So I thought it was more something along those lines, but uh, that's, that's really neat. So you're, you're very, you're a very disciplined person. I mean, you'd have to be in order to do all that you do just in your profession, let alone starting a new company, but more specifically, you're very disciplined not to make yourself the story, um, whether it's in your reporting or as I was preparing for this, it was really hard to find biographical information about you other than maybe a blurb on uh, on the Politico site. Or, but there there is one tidbit that I, I did want to ask you about at the very end of The Hill to Die On, which is interesting. You put the acknowledgments at the end. You say this really cool thing. I came from North Dakota to Washington, a wide-eyed woman with bleach blonde hair and a nose ring and wait, waitress shoes in my suitcase in case the whole journalism thing didn't work out. That's the truth. Yeah. I, uh, I, I lived the DC dream in a way that it's, it's kind of what is one of the best things about Washington where unlike a lot of cities, you think of LA or New York, it's power. It's where you went to school, you know, these kind of Ivy league connections. Washington is really a town where a lot of people come from all over the world 
and, you know, kind of make their way through based on hard work and, you know, connections and, and, and that kind of thing that you build as you go, but it, you don't have to necessarily be the son of somebody to, to end up being pretty successful. Yeah. You know, that little tidbit told me a couple things all in that image. One is it indicated, and it sh- this, this character trait showed up elsewhere, a laser-like focus and, and just throwing, you know, shoving all in on this, this desire to be a journalist, specifically in Washington, but also a humility, the, the waitress shoes in the bag. Is that something that comes from your North Dakota roots, your family? Or what, where does that come from? You know, I think I'm always very realistic. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very ambitious. I think if you look at, I, I come from, I grew up on a farm in a little town um, south of Fargo. My parents are still there. Uh, work is super important. Um, and, you know, my parents work six days a week. Sunday, they took off. We went to church and, and kind of spent time as a family together. But I think that when you grow up, in the kind of a big family like I did, there's a lot of, there's somebody who's always making fun of you. Somebody who's always, you know, keeping you in line, keeping your uh, ego in check. And I think that's really important uh, as you kind of make your way through the world, particularly, you know, I wanted to be a reporter since I was in second grade. You know, I wanted to be Connie Chung or Katie Couric asking questions. And I was always a very curious kid, but when you don't know anybody and you, you know, you have to make your way through the world, it's important to always know that tomorrow could be gone and that's okay. It doesn't define you. These things, sometimes it gets really easy in today's culture to get swept up in what you know people think of you versus who you actually are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a mentor once say repeatedly, let the work speak for itself. Let the work speak for itself. And your work certainly speaks for itself. And I could tell that that's a commitment of yours. One of the other things I saw in those those acknowledgments, just I had to derive a lot of information and maybe some of it is inaccurate, but you thanked a bunch of people toward the end. I couldn't tell if they were your siblings and you had a ton of siblings or if some of those were your friends or did you grow up in a big family like that? I, so I'm, I am from a big, well, I mean, big by today's standards. I'm one of four. There's four of us in my family. So I'm, I'm very close to my siblings. I have two older siblings, uh, a sister and a brother and a younger sister who's much uh, younger than I am. Um, but a lot of those are my, I, I like to call my family, my friends that are family. You know, I've mm. lived out on the East Coast for over 15 years and far away from family. Uh, my family either lives in North Dakota, the Midwest, or kind of on the West Coast. And so those are the people that you really rely on. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've always been super thankful that I had such a tight group of very close friends that I've known for a long time when I was just a you know, cub reporter that nobody cared about. And when you kind of take it into a more public profile, it's really good, I think, to be grounded and know who your friends are. And so those are a lot of those people really helped along the way. Two more uh, things about this, and, and then we have so much to cover, but I think they're really important. You also thank your nieces and nephews. And specifically, you say, I hope I make you proud one day. <laughs> that that like really resonated with me and it caught me off guard. You could probably maybe tell in my voice that it it like strikes me at an emotional level. Um, is that something that still drives you on a filial fundamental level? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very close to my, my two nephews and my niece and my goddaughter, uh, Eleanor, who I also mentioned in that. Uh, I haven't thought about this, this um, acknowledgements in a, in a while, but I do. I think that I want to make people proud and I, I want to live a life that I can certainly be proud of. I, you were talking about the motto that you that was kind of ingrained in you. For me, it was my mother who said there was no substitute for excellence. That was yeah. the motto of my childhood. And it wasn't that you always had to be first or you had to be the best or get the blue ribbon, but that you need to be excellent for yourself and to always hold yourself up to that standard. And that's something that, I, you know, I don't always hit the mark. You know, we all have failings and times where, you know, we, we, we don't do our best, but that's something I try to do on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. You may have intuitively known what I, the last bit that I was going to ask you about, uh, one of the people you gave a resounding heartfelt tribute to was your mom. Could you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah. Joyce is, uh, she's, a figure that is very big in my life. You know, she was a homemaker, she was a teacher and a homemaker. And I think really pushed us to think about 
who we are as people. And also that, you know, you grew up in a really small town. It's, I think, not that she wouldn't have been happy if we'd ended up there, but to think bigger about the world expansively uh, and your role in it and, and who you want to be. And she's, to this day, I mean, is a looming figure. I, I talk to her almost every day in my life. Um, you know, she's very, I think, proud, but I think also keeps you very grounded. And um, that kind of Nordic stoicism is important uh, in, in this world, in particular in politics, you know, you can kind of get high flying. And I think she keeps, she's very good at making sure that I continue to stay grounded. Yeah. So much makes sense. Before I started digging into your background, uh, there were little hints. Uh, sometimes it just showed up in the way you say about, <laughs> but, yeah, yes. but there were other more character level hints uh, where, when I learned that you were from North Dakota, went to school, um, St. Olaf, Minnesota? St. Olaf College, Minnesota. Yes, the Olies. The Olies, yeah. Yeah, so it reveals itself in your work and in reading more of your work and then learning more about you. It, it makes so much sense. Uh, speaking of St. Olaf, uh, St. Olaf College. So <laughs> combined with the fact that you had this double major, English and poli-sci, and then, you know, the school newspaper, the Manitou Messenger, I don't know if it's still called that, but uh, you, you started your, your, by the end of your school career, it seems like you went from uh, reporter to like takeover of the whole paper. It was clear that you had this laser-like focus on exactly what you wanted to do. You said second grade. How did you know that? No, I always thought I wanted to. I probably like to. I challenge, like to challenge authority. You know, and you, as a reporter, you really get to stand up to people and all kinds of positions of power, whether it's the city council member or the principal or you know the speaker of the house, and get to ask them questions, hold them accountable to their positions. I really wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to go to journalism school uh, when I was 18 and my parents really believe in liberal arts, um, and I'm very thankful. Uh, you know, they did, and so we kind of made a deal that I would go to a liberal arts school, at least for the first year. And then if I still really wanted to go to journalism school, they would be, they would kind of bless that. But so I spent a lot of my time, yeah, I did internships, you know, across the country. I went one summer to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and, and I would do anything to, to, to be a reporter. And so I, I kind of built those building blocks while getting, uh, you know, focusing on English literature and political science um, in my studies. But yeah, it's, I think it's now called the Olaf Messenger. But yeah, it was a weekly newspaper. It's really like my one, was my one real kind of extracurricular. And I loved it. It was, it was a really great experience. Yeah, I'm trying to picture second grade Anna, you know, asking tough questions of Principal Smith or whoever it was. So, Principal Smith, why did you decide not to call a snow day? I don't know. I'm just trying to picture that scene. Um, but having been a, a staff writer, news editor, uh, eventually executive editor uh, at The Messenger, how well did that prepare you for your first jobs in Washington? Uh, American Prospect, Legal Times, is that right? Yep, yep. So, um yeah, I mean, I think, listen, I did a bunch of, so I interned, I thought I really wanted to be on television at first. So I worked at some TV stations and I did some other internships. I spent a semester. So a lot of people, one of the best things about St. Olaf, uh, if anybody's listening is thinking about their sending their kids or going themselves is they do a, a really amazing abroad program. So that's one of the real reasons that this was started, um, did, uh, did, you know, foreign kind of trips much before a lot of other colleges did. And so I did not avail myself of that, but it's really one of the reasons to go there is I went to Washington DC. So I did my semester abroad there and I you know, spent um, time at a college there and I interned at Roll Call, which was kind of the Capitol Hill newspaper of record at that time. And so I think that in particular helped me um, kind of understand writing and things like that. But, you know, it was tough. I, I, I transitioned. I moved seriously to but that for or that acknowledgement in the book is accurate. I I left college two weeks after college graduating and I drove with a friend across the country and moved to D.C., didn't have a job. And I started at the American Prospect doing fact checking. It was a nonprofit. It was a great a lesson in man, nonprofits can sometimes be really difficult. They don't know how to like, you know, pay for the staples and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, kind of faked my way into a job. I, I was very confident and, you know, I went to legal times and I started working for, um, for one of their properties called influence, which was a bi-weekly newsletter covering the influence and lobbying industry, but it was great. I covered, I loved covering lobbying. Um, it was an industry that not a lot of people, 
covered. Um, and so there was all these people that had this wealth of knowledge who'd been very powerful in government and then went, you know, downtown to, you know, kind of work in for companies and different things. And so they knew a lot. And, you know, I just would ask a lot of questions. And sometimes as a woman, you get discounted, but it didn't really matter. They would tell you things because they didn't think I knew what I was talking about. And I learned some, so I wrote some really great stories there, but you know, you have to learn how to, I, I had great editors along the way. And I, you know, certainly had to kind of figure out how to put the pieces together. That's, I, I didn't come in thinking, you know, I didn't win a Pulitzer my first year. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious about that because I was looking at your stories at roll call and I saw that you had started at 2007, but you had these stories in 2003. So that must've been yeah. that when you first got to DC or was that the internship or? My internship. Yep. Yeah. My internship. Yeah. I have questions about legal times, but I have a touchy question maybe. Much has come to light in recent years about the perils many young people, especially women faced in industries. You know, I come from the entertainment industry as well as politics. Did you have to face obstacles beyond, like you say, being discounted for, for merely being young to prove yourself as a professional? Yeah, I think, listen, I, I think that it was a different time. First of all, I think that most of the people I covered at that time were much older white men who had a lot more power and money than I did. I mean, I would take these, you know, mostly, you know, men lobbies out to lunch and hope my credit card would <laughs> go through, you know, like you're just like, oh, I hope that works. But, you know, I think in some ways I really benefited from probably being a little bit naive. And I also, you know, there's people that I think in general, you can kind of tell when you're in a bad situation and try to stay out of them. But for, I also, a lot of the, a, a lot of those lobbyists really took me under their wing. I was probably their daughter's age. Mm. And so, or their granddaughter's age in some ways. And so I really benefited from people that, from those situations. And I also think, you know, I, I've given a lot of advice. I used to run the women's program at Politico. I feel strongly that and it's not even just about lobbyists. So you think about members of Congress and how they used to act and the bad behavior and kind of getting too close and uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I think there's ways that I, behavior was, a, was much more allowed, you know, mm, it wasn't yeah. uh, in a way that like today, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it is. And I think people are much more aware and it's much harder to get buy with stuff in terms of there's cameras, there's all kinds of things, but I had a lot of tactics that I used um, that I think now I look back and you think, mm, maybe that was not the best situation. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Well, it's not funny at all, actually, but in, in our entertainment practice, one of our first big clients were, were the Weinsteins. And I was very much aware of their management style. I was somehow able to avoid, we called them the screamers, so that's what I was aware of that, you know, you just had to get used to the possibility that you'd have a stapler thrown at your head or that you'd get screamed at just arbitrarily. Uh, but, you know, 15, 16 years after I dealt with them, this information came out and I was horrified. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other podcast, if not a whole other series. But one of the reasons I ask is, is that you've been an immense advocate and champion for other women in the industry, such as you had alluded to through the Women Rule podcast. I know many women and men found the stories you highlighted inspiring. Are you still involved in Women Rule or do you plan to launch something similar under Punchbowl? Yeah, TBD. No, um, I I am not involved. I, I ran the program as its editorial director for the last two years and have been really involved with it since the beginning of Women Rule there, which is something I'm super proud of. I did I ran the podcast. I, I think was really at a time there. I TBD in terms of Punchbowl. We're not ready to announce anything right now, but I it's something that I'm personally extremely passionate about, um, and I continue to to work in a lot of different areas with it. But I. Yes, I think there will be somewhere. I'm kind of kind of figuring that out right now. Um, okay, a month and a weekend to our company, but yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I just got a scoop there. I, I think I got a tease of a scoop. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so your first big job, as you said, was uh, Legal Times. The Jack Abramoff story you did there in '04 was that your big breakthrough? It was. I mean, I think that was, so I had been covering lobbying um, and no one was really paying attention to it. Right. And then all of a sudden you have this massive scandal with this man who built Indian tribes out of tens of millions of dollars and was pretty abhorrent. 
And I was very well positioned to write about it from kind of inside the room. And it was it was the first kind of big national story I covered. Wow. How, how did you find that story? Did that story find you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, it was kind of out in the, I mean, this was kind of transpiring. And then we were doing a lot of stories about different staff that was involved and what he was doing. And it was kind of a series of stories that, you know, built into, a, I mean, there was congressional hearings. It was very dramatic. Um, but you kind of, all of a sudden, people who were turning scrutiny on lobbying and money and how companies were trying to influence Washington. And, and I, at that point, had had enough of a source base to really kind of be able to take advantage of that. Yeah. Now, just trying to get a lay of the land, is going from legal times to roll call kind of like getting called up to the major leagues or is it not quite like that? I don't know if I would, I don't know if I see it that way, but it was certainly went from being an industry publication, you know, about lawyers for lawyers and lobbyists to what was then certainly the, the paper of record on the Hill. It was a goal of mine, um, you know, but it was, it's such a different time when you think about it. I remember when I started at Roll Call, it was going from, th- it had been three days a week and it was gonna go to four and people were in an outcry, right? It was kind of like <laughs> newspapers are still trying to figure out the internet and how, you know, you were still really focused on publishing what was in, you know, being on the front page. And so, you know, but it, it was, a I loved, I mean, my time at Roll Call is, I mean, some of the most formative in my journalistic career. I, I met many of my best friends there. Um, it was a, it was a really great time. Yeah, I did notice that a lot of your stories, especially early on, uh, Emily Heil, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I just noticed that you had partners uh, along the way. And you also mentioned a couple of different places I'd heard you in, in interviews and the acknowledgments again, that those partnerships and those relationships are really valuable. Is that how you really learned? I mean, you learned a lot at, at in school, but is that how you really learned how to write and, and how to do your the, the, the craft of journalism? I think that's probably right. I, I think it's, you know, partnering with people that are, you know, better sourced and have more experience than you. I think working with really good editors is super important. I mean, so much of what being a reporter though is it's the relationship business, right? It's learn, I mean, getting people to tell you stuff that could probably get them fired. Yeah. And and learn and gaining people's trust. You know, you're not necessarily friends with these people, but there is a trust factor there that you're an honest broker, that there's not going to be surprises in your story, that you're willing to have the tough conversation on the front end. And those are all things I learned along the way. I mean, I, you know, I don't think that that comes necessarily, you know, on day one, but, you know, I think there is a real craft to it. That. That's very clear in your reporting to this day that you must have really strong relationships with people at the highest levels of politics um, and in your field. Do you develop those relationships just through track record and over time? Yeah, I mean, I I spent a lot of time doing it, right? I mean, I spent a lot of time going to breakfasts and lunches and drinks and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of source cultivation, but I think that part of the longevity and I think what our book really showcased was the fact that we had we talked to just as many Republicans at the top level as we did Democrats yeah um, and those people continue to talk to us even though we wrote things that weren't necessarily flattering about them but they were true and so I think from my perspective I think that that is the bottom line is you have to be able to write something that is accurate, but particularly on the Hill, like you're going to see them the next day. Yeah. Right. So you can't just take shots at people when, you know, you need to be able to go up to the speaker two days later and ask her a question. Um, you know, she feels like you've been treated her unfairly. Uh, that's going to be a lot more difficult to do. It doesn't mean that you pull punches or you don't write tough stories. I think there's a real nuance there. It seems like their motivations to talk to journalists in the first place are at odds often with the very the very job itself of reporting accurate news. In other words, it seems like their motivations would be intertwined with wanting to shape the story, wanting to if they want to get a message out, it's their message. If there's bad stuff out there, they might want to uh, try to get you to tell other stories so, to distract from what's really important. How are you able to discern that and how are you able to navigate that relationship so that they I don't know that it that's all I, I can't figure that out. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think part of part of being a reporter, right, is being able to see the signal through the noise. Mm. Right. And I think that in particular, our readers now trust us to do that. 
I think you also have to um, come to the job with an understanding that people, of course, are trying to shape a story. They, of course, have a point of view. Very few sources are just being benevolent and choosing to speak with you, you know, because you're such a great person, right? They have something <laughs> they're trying to get across. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean they're bad people. It just, it just is important to understand motivations. And I think when you do and you take that into account, it's a lot easier to write the story that is important to write, that is truthful, that gets as close to the truth as possible, right? I mean, that's, that is what I think Paul Ryan or one of the main figures in our book said, well, this is as close to the truth as it could have been. You're like, that's, you know, for a lot of these meetings, these things, you're not a part of it. So you're relying on people to tell you and, and kind of cobble together what actually happened. Right, right. Fascinating character. I, some of these characters, you're, you do a good job of, of humanizing these characters that have become like these mythical figures in our public stories. There was one incident in there that just blew my mind. I didn't think this was really happening. It was Paul Ryan and, oh gosh, uh, he, he became the chief of staff. Mark Meadows. Thank you, Mark Meadows with Trump. But Sean, Han they were talking about healthcare, but Sean Hannity was on the, on the call too. Are you freaking kidding? Like, are you like that was really happening? <laughs> it happened. I there's a lot of those moments in the book that, and and certainly in the in the two years after our book, our book is really the first two years of the yeah. Trump administration from the vantage point of Congress and how they dealt with this kind of uh, unexpected character. Yeah, I mean that's wild, right? Like no one in any kind of normal times would expect a conservative or liberal uh, commentator to be on a policy conversation call with the Speaker of the House and the President. I mean, it's just unheard of. Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, a conference call into Hannity's show for whatever reason they might have done it together. It was literally having a policy conversation that some dude who has a radio show. <laughs> you were wondering where your invitation was. That's, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, exactly. Well, going back to your time at Roll Call, that was a really interesting time of 07 to 2011, not just in terms of what was happening in the news and in politics, you know, the great recession started and uh, Obama came into office, the Tea Party emerged, uh, GOP took back the house. There was so much going on, but there was also a lot going on in the industry, as you alluded to. Did you have a sense of where news was going as an industry, not, not the news stories, but like news as an industry was going, or was there just a lot of uncertainty at that point? I think there was a ton of uncertainty. I mean, if you look at that moment, right, I, it's so interesting now you fast forward to where we are today and it's, it's, it's a very different landscape, not just in terms of the digital landscape, but just like some of these, I mean, when I was there, the post wasn't hiring, they were doing, you know, like the New York Times was doing rounds of layoffs. Like, I mean, it was just this economic kind of collapse of the entire business model for journalism, right? As, you know, basically everybody was morphing onto being online and people couldn't figure out how to charge as much in terms of their sponsors. Um, no one wanted to pay for content and, you know, the, the kind of the, that, kind of tension was was palpable. It was, you know, I didn't know what the future necessarily was for journalism. I mean, at that time, though, then you have to think when Obama came to office, Politico started um, and everyone thought, oh, my gosh, how could this is going to be a failure? There's not going to be room um, for this. It's such a crowded space already. And then Politico came and totally kicked everybody's butt. Yeah. You know, and kind of almost reinvigorated, started a very different news cycle, really supercharged the concept of being digital first and breaking news online and not being worried about what, what was on the front page of a paper. And now you, everyone else has kind of morphed into um, that kind of storytelling. Yeah. Tell me about that move from roll call to Politico. When you got to Politico, it wasn't yet the powerhouse that it is today. No, it was a very different, def, very different place. I it was 75 or 100 people. Um, you know, I mean, I interviewed with the founders. They, I at that time was covering Speaker Nancy Pelosi's uh, first speakership. And I had kind of left covering lobbying behind and, and that kind of stuff. And they wanted me to come over and, and help run their lobbying newsletter. And I really wasn't actually that interested because I was like, I've already done this. I've moved on. I'm covering leadership. And Jim Vandehei really kind of 
will always stick in my mind is the reason why I decided to go was that, you know, come here and kill the competition by, you know, doing the lobbying beat and then you can do whatever you want to do. And he, true to his word, you know, we, we were very successful in their newsletter um, influence in kind of growing the subscriptions and all kinds of things. And then um, I did a lot of things, you know, I, I covered Romney's, you know, I traveled with Romney during his presidential. I lived in Iowa and New Hampshire for, you know, the last, in, in 2016. Um, I did big series on military sex assault. I did a lot of investigative reporting. So it was a really, it was a really fruitful place for me to try a lot of different things. Right, right. Is that where you met Jake and Brez? Jake, actually, no, I've known Brez. So John Brezahan worked at Roll Call okay. for a long time. And so I knew him, I've known him since I was probably 20, 21 when I okay. interned there. And then Jake actually was a very friend of mine. You know, we were all reporters on the Hill. So we kind of sat in the same gallery and um, he helped recruit me. He was, he, he helped convince me that going to Politico was a good idea. So we've, we've been friends a really long time and we became basically writing partners long before we took over Playbook. We yeah. Read- writing together a lot. Uh, so our listeners know, well, wh- why don't you tell them who who they are uh, in the context of Punchbowl and what y'all do together? Absolutely. So Jake is really like my business partner. We wrote the book together. We made the case uh, to take over Playbook um, kind of four and a half years ago, which was kind of the preeminent front porch to Politico was its, its kind of flagship newsletter. And we did that together for four and a half years. We've we've kind of mind meld. Um, And so he and I decided this fall that we were gonna leave Politico and start our own company. Um, We didn't know the name then was gonna be Punchbowl. And we helped recruit John, uh, who's one of the other co-founders. And so the three of us in the company kind of are the editorial kind of side of things. And then we have another uh, co-founder, Rachel Schindler, who we had worked with at Politico for a while, who'd been at Facebook more recently, and she's kind of helps with operations and product, products and growth. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So, so this is an ignorant question, but so playbook was already a thing and then you and Jake took it over. Yeah. So, play, so playbook was started by Mike Allen, one of the uh, kind of original founders of Politico and it was really started as kind of this like internal tip sheet. And then they were sending it out and it became very, very popular. And so they, when Mike and Jim and some others decided to leave and start Axios, um, they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with this product that was very identified with Mike. And we decided, Jake and I, I think I was in Iowa and we were on the phone and we decided like, we should be the people who should take it over. You know, we should be like the hometown kids, you know, go for the triple to your metaphor earlier from the triple A's to the major. Yeah. And so we wrote memos and we did you know, presentations. And I, I don't think they were initially convinced. I mean, it was a big leap of trust for them to give it to us and not to necessarily hire some really big name. And we basically took a product that was 10 years old and we, you know, revolutionized it in a lot of ways. We made it into its 2.0 version. We started a podcast. We added a second newsletter. We, you know, grew its, in over four and a half years, we tripled the number of subscribers, doubled the revenue. I mean, we we really made it into a, a, a fully fledged kind of product. So you were seeing things in media and content and how news was delivered. And you thought that you could help to evolve something. So it, it was a staple for DC. That makes sense. And, and it clearly, uh, you know, scoreboard, you guys really took it to a whole other level. Uh, speaking of a whole other level, we already talked a little bit about about Punchbowl, which, by the way, let me just say that I am absolutely addicted. Uh, I get my a.m., midday, p.m. Punchbowl news. So some of the content is available for everyone, uh, but there's another level uh, for members for a subscription. And gosh, I mean, it's worth every penny. And I, you guys don't don't say I said this but you guys could probably charge about 10 times as much as you are. <laughs> uh, virtual meetups, um, up-to-date, well-sourced, insightful information. So uh, Punchbowl is just absolutely worth its weight in gold. What <laughs> What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> I don't part- know. I mean, <laughs> no, you guys, I, you know, we were looking around. It was going to be the end of the Trump, We, you know, at the kind of summer to fall, it looked like Trump was probably going to lose. It's going to be that, you know, we, it was a nice bookend we'd done before Trump was president to through Trump's presidency. And I think we had just 
broader ambitions. I think when you run a platform, and I had also been running Women Rule for at that point for a couple of years, um, you know, you become really entrepreneurial and in a lot of ways. And I think we had a lot of thoughts and theories about how the next phase of journalism is going to go, kind of the content creator plus model, um, which is not the big newsroom model, is kind of the future of journalism. And we thought it was the time, you know, we, we felt like this was our moment. Politico had started for the beginning of the Obama administration. Axios started at the beginning of the Trump administration. There was going to be a new president, Joe Biden, who kind of comes in as a little bit of a weaker president. And you have this power in Congress that is very tight. And we felt like we had this real ability to talk about power, people, politics, kind of our credo around what we are focused on our North Star in a way that very few people would have that expertise. And that yeah. they're kind of the battlefield of the campaign, which was kind of you know out in the States, was now going to be the battlefield in Congress. And again, uh, just so we drive home the point, the Daily Punch, you know, in about 10, 12 minutes, we really get just absolute up to date. It just started February 1st. And uh, again, I'm, I'm already addicted. So I'm curious as to your thoughts. It seems like there is an emergence of, it's like in a democratization of media. There's an emergence of independent media outlets. Is that what you were seeing? So you saw an opportunity and you felt like you could deliver a unique product. It, it, are those some of the things that you're observing? A thousand percent. I mean, look what's happening with Substack, what's happening with a lot of these different, even just people banding together. I think the other thing that is a differentiator for us, and you alluded to it a little bit, is this concept of community. I think there's a lot of news companies that are shoving thousand word stories down people's throats and just kind of writing and pushing out information. And we really felt like there should be an information loop and that that should be an ecosystem that we help create, which is really thinking about our premium members, which is these events that are much more of a dialogue based, answering people's questions, talking, making it, you know, the, the accessibility factor um, is something that we felt like was really missing in journalism. And it kind of, I think the pandemic makes people want to connect and want to be part of this community. And so like, how can we at the highest levels of Washington get, you know, add, add that kind of value add? Yeah. For as busy as you are, as much reporting as you do, as much content as you put out, I, I would imagine it gets difficult to separate the forest through the trees. How are you, you mentioned before, I forgot the phrase you used, but how are you able to discern what the real story is? We look and our coverage is super focused. I think in some ways it's a lot easier than being at a big general interest news organization. Our North Star are, is power in Washington. So looking at how the leaders are exercising power, how it's influencing uh, legislation, how industry is trying to influence those things. And so, you know, for us, what matters is does Mitch McConnell read us, does the chief of staff to Nancy Pelosi. I don't care whether you love him or you hate him. Like that is not my, there's a lot of partisan journalism right now. And there's a there's a total space for that. That's not what we're doing. We're here to help you decipher what happens in Washington in real ways. Right, right. I, there's a bunch of topics I'd love to ask you about, to topical news oriented, but you mentioned one before something I think that's historic from having worked in the Capitol, actually in the Capitol for so long, I wonder what your reaction was as you saw the events unfold on January 6th. It was our third day in official business. Jake and Brez were in the Capitol. I was not because I was kind of running the back end of some of the things that we were doing. You know, it's, it's unbelievable to me still. It's a place I've worked almost every day for a lot of my adult life. There's a real reverence and for anybody who has been there, I'm sure you've gotten a tour, but there's a real sense of decorum. It's almost like a throwback era where the men still have to wear ties and the women up until recently had to have their shoulders covered. And I always used to say, yeah, DC typically, I always it does protest so well. There's so many protests here and that is fundamental to America as a democracy. And it's almost always peaceful. And I always used to say to my mom, I would say, you know, don't worry, I'm in the Capitol, I'm in the safest place. 
you know, were guarded by police. And to see what happened is, I think, fair, I mean, I think it's terrifying. I think that there's a lot of members and reporters who are in the building and staff that are having PTSD from it. Um, you know, no one knew what was going to happen. And there were people that were clearly there to wreak havoc and do harm. And I think that the reverberations of it is really scary too. Now you've got fencing and, you know, 10,000 troops from the National Guard that are going to be there for the foreseeable future, magnometers outside the House floor, a lot of distrust of the, the police in a way that I have never seen before. It's It's really been pretty brutal. Yeah, I grew up in New York, New Jersey area, and 9-11, uh, there, there's a lot of similarities, especially as the day was playing itself out. I knew people who worked in the towers, uh, lost a couple of friends, had friends that, uh, you know, worked for the fire department and uh, police department, um, had a lot of friends who I know whose trains went through that station. And one of the things that it still kind of stays with me is that moment in time when I couldn't get in touch with some of my close friends. Were you able to stay in touch with Jake and Brez and some of your friends there and, and just to know that they were okay? Yeah, no, I mean, I will say there it wasn't like a communication lapse in the same way 9-11, right? I remember my sister at that time lived in New York and actually I think, I don't want to misspeak on this, but anyway, but um, we couldn't get in touch with her. And so um, that was very terrifying. I remember that. And so it was not like that. I mean, I we were, I mean, we were doing, the other opposite is, you know, we, they were taking videos and we were put, uploading them on the internet. I mean, I think in, one of, in some of the ways it was, you know, this kind of ability to report through Twitter and video um, and really give people an inside look on it. I mean, it's only come out much more so about how actually horrific it was um, and how close they were to actually really, really causing, you know, harm to members of Congress, to the vice president and other things. So it's, I, it's just really disappointing, I think, and how, you know, you think of 9-11, it was terrifying, but yeah. that was foreign, foreign terrorism. This is domestic terrorism. Yeah, uh, there, there's a, so much about that day. I shared this story before on the um, on the podcast, but that very day, you know, at 11 o'clock Pacific, it was two o'clock there. I had already heard certain commentators. I was in my car, just so happened, and already heard certain commentators, certain pundits. They, they seem to have these congealed talking points. And I'm like, are you serious? There's an attack on the Capitol and you're, you're giving me a, um, many people are saying kind of a thing. You know, many people are saying it's really Antifa kind of a thing. Um, it was disgusting, but actually question for you is there are some politicians that are going to talking points. So, some are dismissive, so, some are just combative about it, um, even supportive, uh, seemingly, of, of the violence that occurs. Does that make your job as a journalist more difficult to separate from that visceral human response to what happened in order to do your job as a reporter? Yeah, I don't think you can necessarily separate it. I think you need to look at things analytically. But I think, I mean, to your point, I mean, I, th I think we need to recover it like it is. I mean, if these members are apologizing for what happened or feel like, you know, it's time to move on. I think we, you know, also need to call balls and strikes as we see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, one of the, I feel like I'm a, a honk for uh, for Punchbowl, but I am, I'm, I'm shamelessly so. But one of the things that I think Punchbowl gets really, really well, you could tell right out of the gate is perspective. You know, one of the things that is just blowing up Twitter universe right now is the subject of MTG. So I, I've noticed that you, your team at, at Punchbowl will report, for example, on uh, the vote that came up yesterday on her committee assignments. Makes sense. It's in the it's in the news. But the perspective is she doesn't get an outsized uh, focus because at the end of the day, she's about one quarter of one percent of one half of one third of the federal government. So I really feel like you, your your team gets that perspective really balls and strikes to your point. You will also occasionally get folks to share information off the record or on background. I'm curious how different are the public statements? I get the feeling some some folks like uh, Matt Gates, for example, I get the sense that that dude is doing a bunch of what he's doing for like just for performance, right? How different is what you might get on background, not necessarily Matt Gates, but from their public statements? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say generally, I, I think it's probably a, a better way of, of referencing it. But certainly, a lot of politics is performative and theatric, and it's playing to the base of, of both sides. I think that if you you always like to use this phrase, the Jim Vandehyde phrase, if you, if you put somebody on true serum, um, what would they actually tell you? Right, that's what we want to write. And I think there, particularly with Donald Trump in the Senate, we have a lot of Senate Republicans who are exhausted by him. I think even the other day, Senator John Cornyn, when asked, you know, a question about Trump, he said, are we still going to be doing this? Like, you know, know, when is it over? Um, And I, I think that there was a lot of exhaustion of Trump in the Senate, but in so much that they still wouldn't necessarily, for the most part, try to take him on or, you know, kind of for the, you know, there's a, some of a handful or so of them, but for the most part, they, I think there was a real fear of Donald Trump and his 74 million voters in the house. I do think there's a lot of Republicans that are very supportive of Donald Trump that are Donald Trump repo- Republicans that come out of Trumpism and that's how they were elected. And that is what they actually believe. Yeah. There are some figures right now. Uh, I, I was just thinking of Ben Sass. It seems like he has a, a, a truth serum smoothie every morning. You know, he, I, I, whether you agree with his politics or not, you know, some of my listeners are more leftward leaning. Some of my listeners are more conservative leaning. But uh, there are certain politicians that really are emerging to be heroes for this moment. You know, and I think some of the folks that have had to take for, in Congress, uh, in the House, the the Congress people who took hard public votes, you know, those are the ones that are emerging to be heroes. So I don't know if you would necessarily say that, but those those are the most fascinating characters to me, the ones that I tend to be drawn to, the ones who it costs them something to vote a certain way. So how significant do you think, this is just some of your analysis, I'm curious as to your thoughts, How how significant is it that Liz Cheney not only won the vote to retain her leadership position, in the Republican ranks, she won it by about two thirds of the vote. I think you can look at it a lot of different ways. They can also look at it to say a third of the of the Republicans thought she should not be in leadership. That's a, a pretty strong signal of you know lack of confidence uh, in the leadership team. I could argue it both ways. I think that she beat people's expectations. I think that she was aided by. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy finally taking a stand and taking a pretty aggressive stand in front of the members before the vote to say, this is my team, you need to trust me. Um, And I think it's another example of the kind of the Freedom Caucus being a a lot of smoke and very little show. They've Mm. oftentimes tried to negotiate these leadership gambits and they they have not worked. And this is just a kind of another example of a lot of kind of chest thumping that didn't turn into (laughs) an in reality. Yeah, there are some incidents that you recount in the book that uh, indicate that, that that's been going on for quite some time now, uh, o- overplaying their hand. So give us some reason to be hopeful. Does someone like uh, Republican Congressman Meyer uh, or a Republican South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy, uh, oh gosh. Um, Nancy Mace? Yes, thank you. Nancy Mace, talk, I was pe- speaking of people who are taking hard votes. Uh, they seem more thoughtful in their approach. Do folks like that, would we? Would they ever hang out with um, a Democratic congressperson, say like uh, Virginia Congresswoman uh, Spamberger? Uh, or do, do their people from their staffs hang out with each other? Or is there just absolutely no crossing those political boundaries, uh, the party boundaries? No, I mean, I think, listen, there's like, there's a bunch of movement now toward the middle, whether you have the problem solvers caucus in the house or the, we were calling them the sweet 16, the gang in the Senate who are trying to find, you know, the ways to the middle. So I definitely think there's an appetite for that. I often think a lot of those things, you know, I'm pretty skeptical of gangs. They rarely actually turn into reality. Most legislation that is going to happen in the Capitol comes straight out of the leadership office. That's where the deals are cut. I don't know how it's going to play out. I think that that's what's going to be very interesting. We've had a lot of the momentum kind of go both ways to the really, really left, to the really, really right. I think the system is very incentivized to always be concerned. If you're a Republican, your only concern is being primary by the right. If you're liberal, your only concern is being, you know, primary by someone who's much more progressive. Um, And that 
is, you know, the system with which we cover um, politics and that's gerrymandering. And until that changes, I think it's very hard to find incentive for people to come together. Yeah. Oh boy. That, that's the hard work though. And hopefully, hopefully we'll see some movement in that direction, collaboration versus always contentiousness. Uh, I saw a couple things in the newsletter this morning, the AM edition. So by way of a quick civics lesson, can you tell us the latest in the COVID relief the, the House is supposed to vote on a Senate approved bill sometime tonight. Could you walk us through this process? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, reconciliation. We got a government like 101. Um, no, so basically what happened is there was little to no hope that there was going to be a big bipartisan deal in you know Biden's first 100 days. And so Democrats have chosen to go it alone. If, of course, if Republicans choose to support this bill, they can, but it's it's a tactic that allows for a bill to pass the Senate with 51 votes instead of a 60 vote threshold. That is a wonky way of saying, basically the Senate passed its budget um, at I think five this morning, 515 this morning with Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker. That then is ping ponged back to the house the House will then have a big debate and it'll go on and on. They will vote on it. They will likely, um, and all to all signs point to that that will pass. And then really the committee work starts um, unfolding in the House. It's going to be, you know, the, the Finance Committee and different, you know, ways and means. And that, that's all kind of working on the specifics of what's going to happen. And then it kind of pings back to the Senate. And so this will ultimately, um, they're hoping that it can be passed by the middle of March when unemployment insurance runs out. Uh, that's gonna be tricky. It's a very, very tight timeline, but they seem to think that they can get it done. And certainly it's what um, Joe Biden wants to have happen. Fascinating stuff, at least for, for political junkies and political geeks. Something else that you discussed, the DCCC and the RNCC, is that is that the shorthand for it, the RNCC? What's the shorthand the, for the- Oh, the NRCC. NRC, I'm sorry, the National Republican. Yep. Yeah, so um, again, just, pure politics, give our audience a little quick uh, lesson on what the DCCC is and the NRCC. And and I have a a follow-up question about that. Okay, so these are the campaign arms for the Republicans and then the House uh, Democrats uh, that focus on getting members of each party reelected. So they are basically member um, organizations that have one of the members of the house uh, on both party would lead that effort. They raise a ton of money. They get, they do a ton of advertising. They help recruit new candidates to run against them. Um, and then ultimately kind of put a bunch of money into the, on ads and different things and, and try to keep the majority or try to win back the majority. Yeah. So I was curious if how they adapt and evolve there, there are some campaigns where it's clear that, they missed the memo. You know, it seemed like I forget which which party failed to, you know, use social. Uh, it took them four years to adapt to social. There are just certain things. So I was curious. For example, in this last campaign in 2020, Stacey Abrams had organized very effectively um, and got out the vote. So do does the DCCC and NRCC do they? identify effective strategies like that and start to adapt them? Or is it more of a recruiting talent at the state and local level? I mean, I think, listen, I think everybody looks around and says, who did really well this last cycle? What did they do? Can we try to employ those tactics, right? I, that's not that surprising. I, I think the NRCC and the DCCC are a little bit different than an outside group like Stacey Abrams, which raises a bunch of money and then they're kind of on the ground really doing get out the vote in a different way. The, those member organizations are about, so it's, you know, kind of help members themselves pay due to dues to them. So it's raising money, picking what races they're going to put money into, recruiting new members, but also helping some of the members themselves in terms of their digital thing and making sure that they're hiring the right people. Um, but it's a very different of the inside game than what you're going to have some of these outside groups that are, are there to do, have a very different function. Okay. That's, that's helpful. Uh, just certain things that I was curious about. I have a couple of fun questions and then uh, I, I know I, I value your time. So I, I want to wrap it up here, but um, have you ever thought about writing a screenplay? <laughs> uh, the truth is stranger than fiction. Um, you know, we've, we've, 
batted around different ideas. I think at this point we're focused on writing about what's happening um, in real time. Well, consider it because especially in the book, it's clear that you not only have a great grasp of the story, you have a an understanding of the complexity of these human characters. And it made, you know, it made the book a really fascinating read on so many levels. I appreciate it. It's funny, I will say this, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I really appreciate uh, what you said, but I, we got some really good advice, which was pick characters, write it like it's a movie, right? Yeah. So you can only have so many, so many characters in a movie that are gonna be your stars. And then you tell the story through that lens. And so we tried to really, I think, limit kind of the players and the people that we focused on and try to add texture and richness through that. Yeah, and even for, for, for my my friends and, and listeners that are fiction, you know, more of a fan of fiction, it, it really reads that way. It's the hill to die on, the battle for Congress and the future of Trump's America. It's a great read. So <laughs> which movies or shows do you think really nail it? And by the way, Julie Mason already called Veep, so you don't get to pick that one. Is it House of Cards, West Wing, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Amistad, I don't know, Mr. Mayor? Which which ones do you think really nail it? Well, they're all just slight slivers. I mean, <laughs> I feel like Veep was the last four years. I think Julie's probably right, where it was, you know, people that were ill-equipped and didn't understand how government works and it was happening in real time. You know, I think if you're in Washington, as long as I am, you wanna be, you want the optimistic, you wanna believe to your point that Mr. Smith goes to Washington or the West Wing, yeah. you know, is, is how it all works. Unfortunately, it's not usually that Pollyanna-ish, but you know, certainly when you're having a bad day watching Mr. Smith goes to Washington, it makes you believe that, you know, fundamentally things, good things can happen. Yeah. Do you have any questions for me? Hmm. Oh shit. I just asked a great journalist if she has any questions for me. <laughs> how I end, that is how I end almost all interviews. What oh, didn't man. I ask? What okay. else what should I have asked? Uh, yeah, I think. What's your perspective? I mean, I think we're people who are in the day-to-day -day blocking and tackling. Do you think the news is being able to accurately kind of cover what's happening right now? I am really encouraged. There's a lot of reasons to be encouraged. I am encouraged, you know, not just because I'm talking to you, but I'm talking to you because I legitimately appreciate your journalism. I appreciate good journalism. I appreciate individuals who have integrity with which they, you know, they go about their craft, their discipline. Um, and so an organization like Punchbowl News gives me reason to be hopeful. I think in analysis or commentary, I'm very encouraged by the emergence of outlets like the Dispatch, outlets like Bulwark, you know, and for for different reasons. Um, but I, I think they do a good job, and there's integrity and there's expertise behind what they do. I'm also encouraged by just I think of them as as green shoots. I mentioned Ben Sass or Adam Kinzinger or you know, the Virginia Congresswoman I, I mentioned, there are people who it costs them something to have to to express an independent point of view. And that gives us reason to be hope hopeful. But it takes some discernment to see through the fog of all day, every day, Trump, 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 all day, every day, MTG. So my perspective, that's my perspective about media. Uh, also about politics. I think as far as where the country is at, there's a lot of reasons to be nervous. But I think one of one of the reasons that we're doing this is that I do think that there is a need to remember our common humanity, right? And what I think of the $15 an hour minimum wage may be very, very different than a very dear friend of mine or many of my dear friends. But it doesn't mean we can't, we can't hang out and have dinner and watch each other's kids when, you know, somebody comes down with COVID. You know, so I don't know, that, that, that's, my that's my perspective. I don't know if that answers your question. I think that's nice. Very good way to end on a hopeful note for America yeah. and our future. I think this country 
we need it. 2021 needs to be more hopeful. And I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think we, you have to, to, to get up every day and do what we do. It's important to remain optimistic in, you know, um, democracy and uh, Americans in general and the grit. And it's been a tough, it's been a tough year and I think everybody knows it, but man, we're going to come out on the other side. We are, we are. One more time, tell us how we can find Punchbowl News and the Daily Punch. Yes, please. You can go to punchbowl.news to subscribe to our free morning newsletter. And then you can get the option to be a premium subscriber. And you can listen to the Daily Punch, which is Monday through Friday, eight to 10 minutes of us, Jake and myself, talking about the news of the day, really giving you a non-biased, a non unpartisan viewpoint. So you can look at what's happening in Washington like an insider. That's basically wherever you are listening to podcasts, you can subscribe, rate us, leave a review. It's the best way for people to find it. Awesome. Awesome. Anna Palmer, what a treat. I learned so much and I really enjoyed hanging out with you. I hope this isn't the last time. Well, I'll see you on the virtual meetups, but I hope this isn't the last time we hang out. Uh, otherwise. So thanks again and uh, be well. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.